All right, you guys, if you could open up your Bible to the seventh chapter of Judges, please. Judges chapter seven. We're taking on our longest portion of scripture in this story in Judges so far tonight. Uh, Gideon is on the cusp of war. God has clothed him with his spirit. Israel is now rallying behind Gideon and God and the Midianites have invaded their land and were prepared to lay waste to the land and drive the Israelites out of it. Gideon has already, uh, he tore down his father's statues. There was a sign with the fleece. Gideon needs to grow in his faith more. He needs to grow in his knowledge of God more. So he puts God to the test with the, with the fleece. And God is merciful, and we see the fatherly father love of God towards him uh, as God answers his request in that regard. And Gideon is encouraged in his faith. And now we have this account of of Judges chapter 7. And so there's a lot here, of course. We have 25 verses, a whole chapter to cover tonight. But what we're going to do is focus on the big themes of the passage. Much of the text is in narrative detail. And but what, and you know, what I want to think of is what is God wanting to teach us in this historical account? And what we'll see is that strength, God's strength, is perfected in our weakness. And that when it is made known in our weakness is what I mean by that. And when it comes to our salvation and the deliverance of God's people, God is especially concerned that we understand who did it and who doesn't do it so that we will not have a misplaced boast so that the right one will get the glory. And also, we must remember that the events which happen in the Old Covenant often happen that way because of God's hand in providence so that we may learn of spiritual realities that are true about the covenant of grace which is the revealed new covenant as told in the New Testament. So let's read our text, all of it. If you have your Bible, please follow along. And then after reading it, we'll ask God to bless our time in his word. So the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 in Judges chapter 7. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all of the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then twenty-two thousand of the people returned, and ten thousand remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of you, excuse me, any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, you shall go with. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. 
And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of this dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And, the divided, and he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put the trumpets into the hands of all of them in empty jars with torches inside of the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come into the camp, the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet... I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hand the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out, and they fled. Then when they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beshetah toward Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, and from Asher, and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as beth and up to the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as beth and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads, the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan." So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding and apply it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, to you be glory, Lord. Um, the account of Gideon's victory can only be because of what you have done and because of who you are. And we ask for tonight that you would give us understanding, that we would know what some of these interesting details mean. Uh, we thank you, though, for your covenantal promises and how you preserve them through your work here at, in the nation of Israel. We thank you that you have made us really uh, your people now through Christ, the, the, the true Israel, the Holy One of Israel, that we might also be your Israel, your, your special people. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's deal with the events of the narrative first. That was a lot of reading. I'm thirsty. I wish I had some water. Whose water is this? It's mine. COVID. Here's how COVID. Okay. Let's deal with the events of the narrative uh, before we consider the theological and practical applications from it. From a narrative standpoint, what we have happening and what we just read, these 25 verses, is God being faithful to the promises to Gideon from the last chapter. So, for example, chapter 6, verse 12, the Lord is with you. 6.14, that you will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. 6.15, 
I will be with you and, I, and you will strike down the Midianites as one man. God fulfills all those promises here in chapter 7. God was with him in battle, giving him this victory in a miraculous fashion. And the victory comes in an exciting and an unexpected fashion, doesn't it? I mean, who would have thought that the victory would, have, would be had this way? Against an enemy that we read about, like in verse 12, that were so numerous that they were like locusts in number. Meaning, in other words, there were so many of them and they were grouped together that you can't even really put a bead on how many opponents you had to fight. The same thing with the camels in verse 12. They were without number, like the sand is on the seashore. You've been on a beach before. You look at the sand. What is your guess at what number it is? It's not even worth guessing. There's so many, so many grains of sand you can't count. Same things with these mini knights and their camels. And the power and the purposes of God, about 32,000 Israelites show up to battle. And notice this, by the way, also they are able to figure out and give a number for the people battling for Israel. But for their enemies, they are like locusts in the sand. I mean, in other words, Israel from the very gate is outmatched in the terms of the size of their army. I mean, 32,000 people is a lot of people. But even that, that you could count that and say, this is how many we have, that's to say a lot. But now they, they can't even count how many Midianites and Amalekites and the people from the east. So Israel is outmatched. However many the Midianites and Amalekites and people from the east had, it is much greater than the 32,000 that they don't even bother to provide a number for them. But then there's this weird account of God dwindling down the size of Gideon's army, dwindling down the garrison of troops. And it's weird. You know, this test that God's put them to, um, the, the, the test itself is weird, you know, to determine who should stay and who should not stay. Well, first he actually, he lessens the group by allowing those who were afraid to go home. And that takes them down from 32,000 people to 10,000 people. Uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, that same principle was put forth to the people. It was part of Israel's plan for, or part of their laws for warfare. So in the nation of Israel, probably like today in the United States, or we used to have a draft, like the state could draft you and make you and force you fight in battle. Now you sign up voluntarily if you want to. Um, in Israel, people were expected to fight, but... And Deuter- do boys have to do something when they're 18? I know I did. I had to sign up. I had to put my name. But the draft isn't live, though. So the draft is live. You still have to sign up. I had to do that when I was 18. A long time ago, so I forgot. Um, but anyways, the, uh, God in his law in Deuteronomy 20 says that if people were afraid, if they were faint-hearted, they didn't actually have to go into battle even though they were expected to, because the reality of the matter is God doesn't need them. Um, and he doesn't want, and God and his purposes didn't God want these people who were fearful and faint-hearted to cause others to become fearful and faint-hearted. And so God in his mercy made a way so that people who didn't want to go to war didn't have to. It was his law. Probably not a very good fighter, no. So it was legal for them to do that. Well, it's amazing, and it's a testimony to God's power in the life of the 10,000 who stayed. Because at that point, don't you think some of the 10,000 who weren't fearful before would then become fearful after two-thirds of their army leave, and it leaves them to fight this even larger army that they can't number in the first place? But we don't read of that happening at all. In fact, 10,000 people is still too many. We'll talk about that in a moment because there's this weird test by which the number is brought down to 300 men. John MacArthur writes this. He says, Soldiers who lapped as a dog, 
scooping water with their hands as a dog uses its tongue, were chosen, while those who sank to their knees to drink were rejected. No reason for such distinction is given, so that it showed nothing about the ability as soldiers. It was merely a way to divide the crowd. Their ability as soldiers had no bearing on the victory anyway, since the enemy soldiers killed themselves and fled without engaging Gideon's men at all. And he's correct, of course. Gideon and his soldiers didn't have to raise a sword at all. That's another weird aspect of this account. As far as wars go, that is. God reassures Gideon by having him sneak down to the enemy camp. He's gracious to him and lets him bring a friend. Right? Says, if you're a little bit scared, you could bring your friend with him. And in God's providence, in his sovereign orchestrating of events, he gives the enemy soldiers a dream about their defeat. In verse 14. Gideon hears them talking about this and it causes him to worship. He praises God from the overflow of his heart. And then he goes back to his camp and he tells them the good news and he comes up with a plan. It's a plan given by God, we're not told, I think it is, by which the Midianites become confused and they end up killing themselves and running away. And as they flee, Gideon sends messengers out through Israel so that, that the rest of Israel can gather these people up who are fleeing and, and put them to death as well. And that's the narrative. That is how God kept his promise to Israel and Gideon. This is how God preserved his covenant promises to Israel and how he maintained the promise of the, of the covenant of grace, which was to bring the Messiah in the future who would live without sinning, to then only go to the cross and pay the penalty for sins so that whoever believed the gospel from the Garden of Eden on would be saved. This victory here that we read about in Judges chapter 7 is part of his providential plan to bring that about. And the covenant of grace promise, the covenant of grace being that covenant that was revealed to mankind in the new covenant, is the reason as to why God obtained the victory the way that he did here. I mean, consider the reality of it for just a moment. We're talking about God here winning this battle. He could have sent a host of angels down and just wiped out all the, these Midianites that way to give Israel the victory. He could have used fire and brimstone to rain from heaven and wipe them out. He could have, in his providence, simply caused them all to die instantly, all however many of them there were. Every, every breath that a person is inhaling and exhaling happens because of the will of God, after all. I think of Ananias and Sapphira, right? When they're before Peter and they, they lie to the Holy Spirit, we read, they just drop dead at that point. Like he could do that, he could do that for that whole group of enemies if he wanted. So why gather so many troops only to narrow them down? Why bring so many troops against Israel, an innumerable amount? Why narrow them down with a test of lapping water? Why involve only 300 and then at that point have them not even lift a sword, have them get victory by this weird way? Well, those questions are harder to answer, but there is an answer for them when we understand the, the biblical and theological emphasis that is occurring. God is getting the victory this way so that he can teach us and his, his people then and throughout all the ages as well of his great plan of salvation in Christ. In these events happening according to God's providence, this way is so that we may learn about God and his plan of redemption. They are types and shadows of the spiritual truths which are revealed to the salvation of our whole souls. So let's consider some of these. After Gideon summoned the troops, the Lord pushed back against those whom he drew. There were too many people there, and God wanted them to be clear, 
Israel cannot boast over God as if they've accomplished this victory on their own. So remember verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. You see, God is concerned with his glory. And, his gl- and in his glory he shall not give to another. Isaiah 24.8, or excuse me, 42.8. God doesn't want Israel to boast over this deliverance. They don't have the right to. And neither does any saved person have the right to boast about their salvation of, their, of the penalty from their sins. Galatians 6.14, the Apostle Paul says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Meaning the world is no longer over him. He does not live for the world. And the world isn't living for him. He's living for Christ. There's no room for Paul to boast about his salvation. It is the cross of Christ that won it for him and for everyone who is saved. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, verse 31, So that it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he's quoting Jeremiah there, Jeremiah chapter 20. God is the one who gets the glory in salvation. Now the Israelites think that they don't have nearly enough people for this battle to get the job done. But the Lord thinks they have too many, too many people for him to display his great power. When the Lord tricked the Gideon, he was just warming up, as it were. Now he whittles their entire army down to 300. And this is relevant to us also. Um, we had this verse in between some of the songs that we sang earlier. It's 1 Corinthians 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world so as to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, he ever chooses the 300 Gideons to overthrow the Midianite hordes of the world. God's strength is displayed in our weakness. And that is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a glorious thing. It brings us to worship Him. And so when it comes to this, you know, we, the church, is the real 300. Before Leonidas and the Spartans, Gideon's 300 defied legions. And their victory foreshadows, it, it points to the, to, to the church in the world. We, the church, are the eschatological, the end times, you were the last days 300 through whom God wages spiritual war, taking up our weaknesses as his weapons. Against immeasurable odds, the church will ever stand victorious because God loves to show his surpassing power in our obvious and extreme weakness. And think of the enemy, of the enemy army read about, innumerable. They were undefeatable by human standards. So it is with our sin. We can't do it. We need one who is not just a man, but who is the God-man to do it for us. And this secures him all the glory, as God's people say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Even the way that God whittles them down. I mean, by seeing who drinks the water in a certain way. It's not expected, right? It's like, what is the plan here? What is happening here? So it is with Christ's victory. Jesus gets victory over death by death. Jesus defeats death by dying so that we may 
that we who are in him may have the newness of life. To God be the glory. But what about these weapons of Gideon? Of Gideon excuse me, Gideon. <laughs> what did he use to pull this off? Swords, shields, arrows, catapults? Nope, yeah. None of that stuff. Judges 7, 16. He divided the seven, or 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. So the weapons of warfare here for Gideon in the army are trumpets, jars, and lights. And yet, the Midianites are destroyed. Chapter 8 actually tells us a little bit more about the size of the group that they were up against. Uh, they, it tells us in chapter 8 that 120,000 people died in this event of the Midianites, and the rest fled. So we don't know the whole number, but we know that they killed 120,000 of themselves. Uh, these weapons, trumpet, jars, and lights, even seized and appropriated the Midianites' own swords and turned them against each other. Weak weapons like trumpets and jars and a torch were, God's, were full of God's saving power. So to summarize what we have so far, we have weak leadership, of, with Gideon, weak army and unbelievably weak weapons. Can you think of anything more foolish than an outmatched army of trumpets and jars and lights to fight an impossible battle? One person. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I can think of something more foolish, and so can you guys, so that's good. But the church in the world seems more foolish as well. And we have victory as well. Let's look at a moment for the wisdom of God in these weapons. The trumpets were ram's horns, as called a shofar, and the jars were clay. Do these strange weapons foreshadow God's weapons of warfare in the new covenant? They do. So just like Gideon was clothed in the spirit to blow the trumpet, the apostles were clothed with power from on high to sound a tr forth a trumpet even mightier than Gideon's. And like unto the 300, you and I have been given a trumpet as well. And yet... A trumpet that is much greater than the trumpet than the, than the nation of Israel had in this battle. What trumpet? The, the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The gospel. We, get, we announce that. I remember a long time ago, a pastor at, at this church um, sounded a shofar during the sermon. Do you, does anybody remember that? That was a long time ago. What? He, he had a shofar and he blew it. It's a ram's horn, a giant horn that's... It was Nathan, yeah, that's why I believe. I remember that too. Um, some people think that the blowing of this shofar during a service changes the spiritual atmosphere of a room. Like some charismatic churches think that, Pentecostal charismatic churches think that. That wasn't the intent of this pastor when it happened here. But it is true that if I blew a shofar here, it would change the atmosphere of the room. But it would be like the clanging of cymbals in a, and with no spiritual power. It wouldn't do anything. Yet, if we were to change the spiritual atmosphere of a room, there is a trumpet for that. The gospel. You know, if we put forth into a room and articulate the sounds about Jesus Christ and Him crucified, people must respond. One way or the other, people must respond. Either a non-response is a response. That, that has a spiritual effect with it, and that response has a consequence for them. And you know, if there's anything more terrifying than going into battle, it's preaching the gospel to friends and to neighbors and to co-workers. That's why most people don't actually do it. 
kind of joking, of course. I mean, going to battle would be terrifying, especially against a number that big. But I bet some of you would probably rather get into a physical fight than have to share the gospel with somebody uh, than to do biblical evangelism. You know, if we ever stood in need of spiritual empowerment, it is when we're about to tell someone of their need for Jesus. The Spirit alone can strengthen our lips. And He has promised to, to us to do this very thing, John sixteen fourteen. He, meaning the Spirit, will glorify me, is what Jesus said. You know, if the gospel is a trumpet, it is the Spirit that loves and chooses to bring the noise to the heart of the recipient. And what about these jars of clay? Remember, um, they had to blow the trumpet and then break the jars. The, the light was in the jar. It was hidden. Uh, is there any likeness to this in the Christian spiritual warfare? There is. We've got 2 Corinthians 4.7. says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So the light of the gospel shines out through the brokenness of the church. We have bodies of clay that can be broken in his service. And we are cracked in the cause of Christ. His light shines through us. The simple teaching of Scripture is that by speaking words and being broken in self-sacrifice, through doing that, we can overthrow the armies of the enemy. It's God who does it, but He does it through us. He, he does it through weak means. We are privileged and commanded as well to be able to share the good news with others, but the success of the whole endeavor, it hinges upon God and not us. We wage war by proclaiming the Son of God and by backing that proclamation with our lives. You know, and that's why our, you know, James talks a lot about uh, showing our faith by the way we live. Not that, not that um, our good works save us, but these things should match. You know, our life our prof- should match our profession. By the grace of God, it does. But if we do live that way, and we do tell others about the gospel, you need to understand that, and, and, and you should expect that you're going to be opposed that you might be struck and beaten down in the cause. Expect to be discouraged. Expect to hear lies. Expect to be hated. Expect to be slandered and reproached all on Christ's account. Expect not to fit in. Expect all of this because Jesus tells us that we are blessed when we suffer for righteousness' sake. All this to say, and this is especially true in light of the, like, the COVID fear that we have now. But live not your lives unto death. Or, as Gideon has it, you know, break the jar. Be spent for Christ. What else is more important than that? Who else? Or what, you know, what else deserves more glory? And one more thing to notice, perhaps. Remember the dream the Midianite guy had? And he told his comrade... <laughs> Funny, says comrade there. Um, it was weird. You know, a loaf of bread comes rolling down a hill and it strikes the camp and it flops on the tent and it turns the whole campground upside down. It's very strange. It sounds like a cartoon. Like- Almost like a cartoon. Like, yeah, what is happening here? It's not really that strange from a Christian perspective, though. I mean, the, the church turns the world upside down by God's grace with bread. The message of the bread of life. Christ crucified is the ever-living bread that comes rolling down from heaven and changes everything, turns 
the, God, the world upside down. When we think about the, um, the spread of Christianity, it, that's what it did. It turned the world upside down. I mean, how different is the world today because of the Christian's influence? And it's much different in areas where there is no Christian influence. That's why we want to take the gospel to all places so that people might hear the good news and be saved. And so listen, friends, God doesn't need us in the spread of the gospel and the glorifying of his name. He can raise up rocks to praise his name. He doesn't need us because he can't do it without us, but he does it. He does use us for the sake of our good. I'm weak. You guys are weak. You don't need me to, to tell you that. But I do need to tell you that God desires to work through that weakness and displays his glory through it as well. He loves to show his real power through our real weakness. That's why God doesn't need the, the proud, the proud, or those filled with pride. He needs the humble. He uses the humble. We can boast then in our weakness, just like the Apostle Paul did. Next time you're afraid to open your mouth for the cause of Christ, for the glory of God, remember Gideon. Remember how God was exalted and trust in him. Let's pray. Holy God, we give you praise and we thank you for the way in which you work. Some of these things in this account here with Gideon are strange to us, but I think stepping back and looking at them with eyes that have been opened through the New Testament revelation that we can see what it is was, that was in fact happening. So we praise you for your wisdom in bringing these things about that we might see them here and we ask for boldness and grace that you might help us to see our weakness that we might not trust in our strength at all lord and instead depend upon you for everything at all times and we pray this all in jesus name amen